Welcome to episode 1832 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm feeling good. It's the week of opening day. Yeah, wild. It is the week of opening day, and today it is Julio Day. Oh, yeah. Hey, I was going to bring that up, you know, because we talk a lot about prospects who do not make the majors when they are perhaps major league ready. Yeah. Maybe we don't talk enough about the ones that do. And that is a great reason for excitement. And if we're going to slag off the teams that do not promote their prospects, we should praise the teams that do. And it's not just... Sometimes it's the same team. (laughs) It is sometimes, yes. It's not just Julio Rodriguez with the Mariners, although that's very exciting. It's also Bobby Witt Jr. with the Royals and Spencer Torkelson with the Tigers and Hunter Green with the Reds. All of those guys, some of the very top prospects, most exciting prospects in baseball, have made the opening day roster. So that's pretty exciting. In case you didn't have enough reasons to be excited that the season is about to start, we could see all those guys in just a few days. Yeah, I mean, I think that we probably should isolate Kansas City for a moment here because mm-hmm. I think, you know, we unfortunately quite often have reason to to note teams goofing around with guys' service times. And Casey just like philosophically does not seem to do that really, which is, you know, something that we should applaud them for. I think we have, when we did our preview pod, we were like, we don't really know if this team has a good sense of its organizational direction, but that it seems to be of the mind that when a a guy demonstrates that he is ready, he should be on the the big league roster. Like that's that is an approach that we we applaud. So mm-hmm. um I'm less surprised by that. I think that if Julio had not made the Mariners opening day roster after the spring that he had, there might have been riots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there might have been chaos. There might have been like packages sent to Jerry DePoto's office. They also (laughs) put Matt Brash on the opening day roster, which less exciting than Julio. Julio, at least by our estimate, is the fourth best prospect overall in baseball. Matt Brash uh, has not yet made the top 100, but is a quite good starting pitcher in his own right. I think I noted him as an important rookie when we did the AL West preview. Mm -hmm. So good for Matt Brash. Torkelson is going to be exciting for Detroit. I I wonder how much of this is there happening to be some teams that are sort of simultaneously coming out of their rebuild. But we've also seen in the past that like teams coming out of their rebuild and being like, we're excited and we're going to try to win doesn't guarantee that their best prospects are on the opening day roster. So I'm I'm wary to give credit to the new rules around service time manipulation because Mm -hmm. I feel like I'd rather it just, you know, lead to punishment when you manipulate service time rather than positive incentives to not do it. But I wonder if we are seeing, you know, teams saying, we'll give these guys some run. And if it nets us draft picks, great. And if they flop, then we'll just send it back down. I don't know. It'll be interesting Mm -hmm. to see how these guys are managed in the next little bit. But for fans of the Tigers and for fans of the Mariners, like, who want to feel like the the new day is here, this is a, a good step. Like, this is... I'm going to do a swear. Like, this is winning. (laughs) So um, it's pretty exciting. I'm Mm -hmm. excited for my friends and family in the Northwest who have just been dying to be (laughs) excited about baseball and seem to be. And, you know, Julio's a really great player and uh, he's a a very charming and fun personality. So that'll be cool. I I don't say that as if Spencer Torkelson and, and Bobby Witt Jr. aren't exciting and engaging personalities. They may well be, but I know less about it. So yeah, here we are. 
Yeah, I wouldn't say that the problem of service time manipulation is solved. No. And we talked last week about O'Neill Cruz, but if we're going to talk yep. about the O'Neill Cruises, then we should talk about the Torques and the Julios, etc. So, yeah, it's uh, getting me in the mood for opening day. So. Yeah. We have an AL East preview today, our penultimate division preview, and we'll be joined by a couple of my colleagues from the ringer, Zach Cram and Bobby Wagner, for that. Just a couple of transactions to catch up on since the last time we spoke. The most notable one was the Sean Manaya trade, right? So Sean Manaya, who is expected to be traded, has now been traded from the A's to the Padres, and he immediately switched uniforms because he was uh, playing the A's, the Padres were, and so he started a game against his old team on Sunday, and he pitched quite well. And the Padres uh, were in talks with the Mets about a potential Eric Hosmer trade over the weekend, which did not happen and has not happened and maybe has been scuttled. But in that trade, it sounded like the Padres were interested in unloading Eric Hosmer on the Mets and maybe also sending Chris Paddock to the Mets for Dominic Smith. And so in this move, the Padres have acquired pitching. So they're kind of doing a couple of different things at the same time, which is sort of an A.J. Preller hallmark. But this is the move they actually made. And, you know, it's sad for A's fans who have just spent the entire offseason watching their roster be disassembled and are probably just used to it by now. And Manaya was in line to make almost $10 million. And so that made him next on the chopping block, I guess. And, you know, should we talk about, I mean, they got prospects back, but not name prospects and so I think there was some consternation some confusion that maybe insert team that needs pitching here the twins the angels whoever could not match or exceed this package so there's that aspect and then there's the fact that the Padres have just I mean they've traded for an entire rotations worth of pretty top tier starters and they just keep adding to that and I don't know whether that is a, a result of the fact that Mike Clevenger is still not completely back or whether they were just so burned by last year and just running out of starters and firing their pitching coach and having to start Jake Arrieta and Vince Velasquez and a bunch of other guys who were washed and now they're just like no we will just have a double rotation we'll just have like a redundant second rotation there just in case something happens to the first but all of these guys they've gone out and gotten from outside the organization Musgrove and Darvish and Snell and Clevenger and now you have Manaya added to that mix. So it's a pretty strong group. Yeah, it is a strong group. I like this actual trade much more than the hypothetical trade that they <laughs> were engaged in, which we don't have to dwell on because it didn't actually happen. And so it is uh, a, you know, a Preller fever dream at this point. I understand, but I'm going to talk about it for a second because <laughs> I understand them wanting to offload Hosmer. I just want poor Chris Paddock to go to an org that is good at pitch development. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the Mets are actually very good at pitching development. The Padres don't seem to be, but I don't know that the Mets are much better. So anyway, those are my thoughts. I hope that Chris Paddock finds his way somewhere else where they can see if they can fix him up. And I don't know. I don't know if they can Mm because, you know, he he hasn't really mastered a third pitch at this point and there are issues with the shape of the fastball. Whatever. It's fine. But it would be nice to see him in the in the warm embrace of a team that is better at, at pitching dev than either of those two. This makes a ton of sense for San Diego and the A's got prospects. I mean, I, I think it's interesting some of the names that were bandied about because while 
The Padres system outside of the very, very tippy top has been pretty thoroughly thinned by trading for the rest of that rotation that you mentioned, among others. <laughs> yeah. Like some of the other names that were involved here aren't exactly replete with great prospects either. It's like, oh, why didn't the Angels do this? I'm like, are you under the impression the Angels have a good farm system? Because <laughs> they, sure do, yes. they sure do not. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it is, I guess, like disappointing from the A's perspective. But I do, I do think that like, there probably wasn't a prospect that was going to make this thing feel better, right? Mm-hmm. Like these aren't guys that folks know. They, you know, have have value as players. They might end up being good for Oakland eventually, but like nothing is going to make this feel very good because mm-hmm. it's just a crummy situation to be in. And it sucks even more to know that this probably isn't the last one, right? That like Montas will follow at some point. So yeah. I, I get it. But I think that we are perhaps putting too much faith in like the healing power of, I don't know, they were never going to get him. But like, you know, imagine they had swapped like CJ Abrams for Sean Manaya. Like you might have felt better about this individual trade. You'd been like, mm-hmm. wow, that's our top prospect. He's one of the better prospects in baseball. And we we have him now and he gets to be part of our team. But like it doesn't fundamentally alter the the shape of their winter so i don't Mm -hmm. know i'm sorry i'm sorry ace fans like you deserve better yeah right and maybe the fact that the padres have traded for an entire rotation's worth of starters is a sign of the shortcomings of their pitcher development but they have done a good job even though they've shipped out so many prospects over the past few years just like a whole farm system's worth an entire farm system's (laughs) worth of prospects Often they have held on to the best ones yeah. or they have traded ones where they have superior prospects at the same position. Like sure. It's just a testament to the prospect depth that Preller was able to assemble, I suppose. So there is still a chance, a decent chance that they will trade from this rotation depth yeah. sometime soonish to get an outfielder. Maybe they have Grisham, they have Myers, and then they have Profar and I guess Matt Beatty, who they traded with the Dodgers for, but they could potentially upgrade there but they have the depth to do that because they just have so many guys after Darvish and Musgrove and Manaya and Snell and Clevenger and Nick Martinez and then you also have like Morihone coming back and Mackenzie Gore maybe putting himself back together there's just a lot of options there so I think that is something to be excited about with sure. that team and with the A's far be it for me to defend them but we should probably note that uh, there's a lot of fake news going around about their payroll this year, right? It's, oh, yeah. It's, I'm, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's really low. I'm we're ready to saying, fight this fight. Okay. It is, uh, we're not saying it is not low. It no. is extremely low. It is lower than any teams but potentially the Pirates. Correct. However, there are a lot of facts going around about how their payroll is in the 30s or something and how there are many players who are making more this season than the A's entire payroll. No, no not true. Right? Not true. And that is, I think, because people are looking at maybe the website SpotTrack, which is a useful site. But when it displays payroll numbers, it just displays guaranteed contracts, right? And, you know, that's a, a useful thing to know as well. Sure. But you have to be aware that that is what it is displaying. Yeah. And it is not displaying, say, arbitration contracts, right? And players who are going through arbitration, who are pre-arb, right. it is not any of those deals. And that actually makes a pretty big difference when you're yes. talking about a team like the A's, let's say, who have a lot of players who are in that 
ARB pre-ARB area, that right. actually makes a pretty d- big difference. So uh, go to Fangraphs instead for your <laughs> payroll needs. Go to Raster Resource. Yeah. So we have their payroll around $50 million, which like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's still too low. Like yes. no one, no one, to be very clear, is defending this as a good number. No. But I think that it is important to reflect the accurate number. And I saw some like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. They're cheap no matter what. But I think that like it is important in the CBA for a lot of reasons to know mm-hmm. what a team's actual payroll number is. On the high end, right, it, it has impacts for competitive balance tax stuff. And then when you're a team receiving revenue sharing as the A's are, like you have to invest a certain amount of money into the roster. And if you're not doing, if you're not meeting certain thresholds within that, like it changes your burden of proof in the grievance process. So like how Mm -hmm. much they are spending actually matters a lot. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I don't know if $50 million is going to get them out of that process or not, but like we should we should just report an accurate number because we can and so yep. we should because why not do that and also because like what the payroll is as i said does end up mattering quite a quite a bit for teams so you should use the various resources at your disposal and you know we do i think a really good job of this like cots does a good job but they you know cots accounts for things a little bit differently sport track does when certain pieces of information are added to payroll versus how willing we are to like use estimates for instance like that can vary site to site but just like you know we should look at a a real number mm-hmm. and we should share those real numbers with our friends if we're going to share them at all yeah, the roster resource payroll breakdown page has been very useful for me. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just very good. It has not only that more accurate payroll projection and the rank, but then it has like the percentage of that amount that is going in guaranteed dollars yes. as opposed to ARB or pre-ARB. So, for instance, the A's have like 29% of their payroll is tied up in pre-ARB players and 29% is tied up in ARB players. And with some teams like, you know, the Guardians, that is uh, very high or, you know, other teams. And so you have to pay attention to that because yep. like, okay, the Dodgers, theirs is uh, 82% is guaranteed contracts or the Phillies, 88% or the Angels, 90%. So you look at the guaranteed contracts, that gets you most of the way there. With Oakland, that does not get you close to the way there. So you do have to pay attention to that. And also this page has the 2023 and 2024 and 2025 commitments of money that has already been spent. And boy, if you look at Oakland and Pittsburgh in particular, and also Baltimore and Cleveland, boy, they do not have a lot of long-term commitments. Like with Oakland, it's $1 million in 2023 and $0 in 2024. And that is the same for the Orioles, basically the same for the Pirates. So the positive spin is they sure have room to spend. The negative spin is they are probably not going to spend a lot of it, at least some of them. So anyway, just uh, know that. And we will link to that on the show page. Not defending a spending, but we are defending accuracy and facts. So, all right. And uh, I will just note a couple other news items. The first is that Joe Davis is replacing Joe Buck 
as World Series broadcaster this year in going forward, which I think a lot of baseball fans will be happy about. Yeah. I am a Joe Buck defender. I actually enjoy Joe Buck. I know that is uh, quite a controversial statement. But Joe Davis, he had the task of replacing Vin Scully in the Dodgers booth, and now he has the task of replacing Joe Buck in the World Series booth for Fox because Buck has decamped for ESPN and a big Monday night football contract. But Davis is, is really good. You yeah. Know, it's just, just another Joe in the booth, but a good Joe. He is uh, sabermetrically savvy. He's not going to bombard you with numbers, but he is clearly aware of the research and the stats, and that informs his commentary. And he's just kind of good on a nuts and bolts level, too. So I think he is a pretty good national voice of baseball. Yeah, I think that it is it is a good addition. And yeah, he strikes a really nice balance, as you said, between not being antagonistic to data, but also not overwhelming a broadcast that needs to have a broad audience and has a broad audience with data. So yeah, I think that it's that's a that's a good move. It will mm-hmm. be strange, at least temporarily, but I'm excited. I think that that's a that's a good outcome. Yeah. I look forward to to potential future moves in that booth too. (laughs) Perhaps, yes. (laughs) And other broadcasting news, Carlos Beltran is now in the Yes Network booth for the Yankees and As one can imagine, maybe that was kind of controversial with some segments of the Yankees fan base, too. It's an interesting timing because just last week, Brian Cashman was whining. Can we say whining? (laughs) Maybe it's not unfair to say whining about the fact that people talk about how the Yankees have not made the World Series or won a World Series in a long time. And he was basically saying, yeah, but sign stealing, you know, if not for 2017, which is kind of weak uh, because you're the Yankees and you spend a lot and you can make it anyway and other teams have made it and won it since then or before then and there's no proof that they would have made it if the Astros had not been stealing signs that year anyway now Carlos Beltran is uh, in the Yankees booth sometimes and so this coincided with an interview with Michael Kay on the Yes Network which I don't know if the full thing has aired yet we're recording on Monday when it's airing but there was a transcript released and a lot of that was reported and I feel like we've uh, traveled back in time for a year or two and we're back to uh, Astros and former Astros players kind of shooting themselves in the feet talking about sign stealing because a lot of this I mean you know he acknowledges that it was wrong and they shouldn't have done it but a lot of the quotes that were released at least were a lot of deflecting maybe you know he said i wish the organization would have said to us hey man what you guys are doing we need to stop this like he put some of the blame on the astros front office for not stopping it which okay we can definitely assign some blame there but also i think the players probably knew (laughs) that what they were doing was against the rules at least and beltran was like a veteran leader he'd been around at that point and there's been some reporting that it was not the first team he had been with that was doing signs and you know that they felt like they were just kind of keeping up with other teams and I certainly get that of course but you know he said a lot of people always ask me why you didn't stop it and my answer is I didn't stop it the same way no one stopped it this is working for us why are you going to stop something that is working for you so if the organization would have said something to us we would have stopped it for sure and 
I guess that's like a little bit of refreshing honesty. Like, hey, we felt like it was working and no one caught us. So that's why we kept doing it. That's probably why a lot of other people in the same position would have kept doing it. But, you know, he's like, nobody said anything to us. Nobody said anything. I wish somebody would have said something. Well, he could have said something, (laughs) you know. So I don't know. I mean, he's not totally shirking blame here, but it's also not a, a total expression of remorse. And it's hard to untangle the remorse about doing it with the remorse about getting caught doing it so i just feel like almost no astro has really helped themselves when talking about this sort of thing like i'm certainly yeah. ready to move on from this story yeah and, you know he's also complaining about how everyone got immunity except carlos beltran which is like kind of fair like he was named in the report now he yeah. was named in the report as like a ringleader as an instigator along with Cora and so maybe that's part of why he was named but also he was retired he was not an active player and he wasn't suspended or anything i mean he right. certainly suffered consequences and that he yeah. was let go as Mets manager and was not rehired as manager unlike Hinch and Cora who have since already returned to the dugout he hasn't so in that sense he has suffered some consequences but was not formally punished and i just feel like you know you're not going to get sympathy from really anyone (laughs) by saying oh they put me in the report about sign stealing because i was sign stealing so you know maybe it's a no-win situation when you have to talk about being part of this but i don't know that that many yankees fans would be won over by this commentary yeah i (laughs) i think that there are probably moments where it's like you need to be aware of the extent to which you feel personally aggrieved and which and when that sense might run counter to the prevailing narrative among the audience you're trying to like avail yourself to right like Mm -hmm. he could have he could have just stopped at taking some responsibility and said you know i regret that we did that and Mm -hmm. he didn't and that might have gone better (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean he said it was wrong i I guess yeah he did you know so anyway there's that (laughs) the latest sign stealing update which will probably continue periodically for the rest of our lives and then you have the whole yankees letter story which is just weird and there's no resolution to that either but the letter that rob manfred sent years ago to explain what the yankees had done with their dugout phone and that has been sealed and now it's supposed to be released but the Yankees are repeatedly appealing and everyone's like well why are they trying so hard to keep this sealed and private if there's nothing incriminating in it just a strange strange story that yeah the whole thing is some resolution sometime soon about unless like it goes to the Supreme Court or something which seems unlikely (laughs) it seems unlikely but yeah it's like (laughs) how explosive can it really be you know that we're having to to do this stuff i don't know it's so strange yeah and the yankees like meanwhile they're like no this must remain sealed and yet we didn't do anything like it's just right. like the principle of the thing like it, it's supposed to be private it should be private but also like why are you fighting this so hard if there's nothing yeah. in there it's just it's sort of weird and suspicious so it might be a nothing burger but i kind of look forward to just finding out for yeah. once it's just so we can set that whole thing to rest and meanwhile of course you have Astros fans saying see see they did it everyone else did it just kind of deflecting the way that Astros players do sometime anyway you can also accept guilt even if uh, other teams were doing those things and maybe were not caught and punished right. it doesn't make it right if, if your team did it too 
All right. And I just wanted to tip my cap to Wilmer Font, who had a, a notable game. Some of you may recall Wilmer Font from his days in the majors, but he's in the KBO now or in KBO. And he threw nine perfect innings for the SSG Landers. And sadly, he did not get the perfect game because his team took a 4 nothing lead in the 10th, but he did not go back out there. And this was, of course, early in the season, and he'd thrown more than 100 pitches, but uh, they did not let him go out to try to finish the perfect game. And I think the reliever who came in issued a walk but preserved the no-hitter. There has never been a perfect game in KBO, and... Perfect games are still special, even if we're yeah. kind of over no hitters, and especially if there's never been one in the entire league. So I feel for him, great outing regardless. But I feel like if I were Wilmer Font, I, I would have said, you know what, let me go back out there. I don't know whether he did or not, but I think to have the first in like the 40 yeah. year history of the league would be pretty cool. I guess it makes sense that there hasn't been one because there aren't as many teams and it's been a high offense league historically, but that'd be still. kind of a, a cool distinction. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Anyway, so Grant Brisby noted that uh, hopefully this won't be a preview of some zombie runner situation where someone uh, goes out for the bottom of the 10th and then this happens, although that will not count against the perfect game. I think it has been announced (laughs) that a zombie runner will not end the perfect game because it's not the pitcher's fault that the zombie runner is still out there. But still, it would be weird and another reason to be miffed about that rule. Yeah, and if you're having to engage in weird, like, twist your arm record keeping in order to account for the zombie that you put on second base. Maybe it's saying you shouldn't do it at all. (laughs) Right. Last thing to segue into our AL East preview here. I have a a semi AL East related quick stat blast because my brain was broken by a trade that happened this weekend and it was not a big trade, but it was notable trade, at least to me. So here's a stat blast. So as I know you are aware, there was an exchange of backup catchers this weekend, right? There were some weird trades. The the Yankees and the Mets made a trade for the first time officially since 2004. So that was weird. That doesn't happen. But this seemed to me even weirder that the White Sox traded their catcher, Zach Collins, to the Blue Jays. And the Blue Jays traded one of their catchers, Reese McGuire, to the White Sox. And I saw this and I thought, well, that's kind of weird because it's a a straight up one for one, right? Catcher for catcher. So that's got to be somewhat unusual. And then the deeper I dug into this, the weirder it was because these guys, like, at least in some respects, are like very Spider-Man pointing meme. Yes. They are the same age. They are both 27 and they were born like 27 days apart. So very close in age. They are both left-handed hitters and right-handed throwers. They are both former first-round picks, a 10th overall pick and a 14th overall pick. We could keep going and coming up with weird similarities. They each played 78 major league games last year. It's just, it's weird. It's uncanny. And why would 
teams exchange players who were so similar is what occurred to me. Now, there are reasons for that, which Ben Clemens laid out in a post for Fangraphs, which helped clarify the situation for me. Even though there are a lot of superficial similarities between these two guys, there are differences in the way that they provide their value, theoretically. So Zach Collins is a hitter first and a catcher second. And That's Reese McGuire, so generous towards his yeah, catching. Yeah, that is, that is very generous. It's so bad. Sorry, Zach. He was, you seem uh, fine, but like, not at that. Quite a terrible framer oh last year in limited playing time, fortunately, for the White Sox. But going from Yasmani Grandal to Zach Collins, I mean, that is framing whiplash. So he was quite bad in that area. Reese McGuire is better. Collins may not even be a catcher long term. I mean, he's got a better bat. He's got power, which McGuire does not have. And I guess part of this was the fact that also Zach Collins has a minor league option remaining. And so the Blue Jays, who have Danny Jensen and Alejandro Kirk, they will have a place to stash Zach Collins in the meantime, whereas they probably just would have lost Reese McGuire. And McGuire will be a backup catching upgrade for the White Sox. So I see why it happened. Yeah. But you just look at the specifics, like same position, same age, same handedness, like Why would this happen? Because usually when teams are trading players, they're trading like like for not like, right? Like we have a strength here and you have a weakness there and, you know, we're making a complimentary trade or maybe it's like future versus present and, you know, we're trading a veteran for some rookies or something and so they're not going to be the same age or we're trading in bulk for one star or whatever it is. So I thought this was weird. I don't know if you could call it a challenge trade or whether it's just like a resignation trade or or an acquiescence trade or something but you know it it just seemed like it would be unusual to me so i asked ryan nelson frequent stat plus consultant to come up with comps for this and has this sort of thing ever happened and in fact it has and it is rare at least when you drill down to the specifics but i will quote the numbers here ryan went all the way back to the beginning of baseball history. And as always, I will put the data online and link to it on the show page. But there have been 2,787 trades that were one for one involving players who had already made the big leagues. 360 of those trades were for players who were born less than one year apart. So we're down to 360. And if we're going to also include the condition that they be at the same position, we are down to 90. So it's fairly rare. There have Mm -hmm. been a, a lot of baseball trades and a lot of baseball seasons. So it's happening less than once a year, let's say. And a lot of those are pitcher trades just because pitchers make up more players than players at any other one position. And I guess you could see how, you know, you need a righty or you need a lefty or maybe uh, you believe that you can fix this guy or maybe his stuff will work better in your system or whatever or in this rotation. So 31 of them were reliever for reliever trades, 17 were starting pitcher for starting pitcher trades. So that leaves just a, a smattering at other positions Four right fielder for right fielder, four center fielder, four third baseman, five first baseman, six left fielder, eight shortstop, and 11 catchers. So that is the most common for this to occur other than pitchers is the catcher for catcher within a year of each other. But it's still quite rare, and it seems to have become even rarer. So there are a few like notable 
examples of this kind of trade, like Steve Carlton for Rick Wise or Bobby Mercer for Bobby Bonds, for instance. But most of them are, you know, pretty minor players. Your your Zach Collinses and Reese McGuire's of the world. Six of the 11 catcher trades like this, the catchers had the same batting handedness. Now, if we want to get super specific, we can say that this is the first ever one-for-one trade of major league left-handed hitting, right-handed throwing (laughs) catchers who were born less than one year apart. A mere six qualifiers required. <laughs> so The most fun, fun fact yeah. we have ever done. <laughs> right. I would criticize that if anyone else tweeted it seriously. Especially because it asserts that Zach Collins is a catcher. Yeah, that too. But this is tongue-in-cheek. Anyway, it hasn't happened for a while. The last time that this kind of trade, a one-for-one between players at the same position who were the same age. That hasn't happened at a non-pitching position since 2016 when Nate Fryman, former Effectively Wild guest, was traded for Tyler Moore. And that's actually the only position player example since 2005 when you had Andy Chavez for Marlon Byrd and Alex Cora for Ramon Vasquez. So this is only the second time that a same-aged position player has been traded for someone at the same position since 2005. So it is quite rare. And the last time it happened with catchers was 1985. Oh, my gosh. It's been a while, right? So Donnie Scott and Orlando Mercado were traded for each other, two catchers from uh, Texas and Seattle in April of 1985, and I found a story about that from 1985, which I will link to on the show page, but it was uh, basically like, eh, you know, we like this guy a little bit more than that guy. It wasn't like, hey, we think we have a superstar here. So the quote about that trade, Scott said he thinks the Mercado Scott swap will benefit both parties. We saw what Donnie could do the second half of the Rangers season, and in the long run, we feel like Mercado is going to be a little bit better. He's in the same age range as Scott. They were actually both 23, and I guess he was right. Mercado was a little bit better technically, or at least he played more, but he was not actually better because they were both sub-replacement level players. (laughs) So Mercado ended up with negative three career war versus Scott's negative 1.7 career war. So I guess you have to decide is playing more, but accruing even more negative value better than playing less and accruing less. I, I guess it is. It was probably better for Mercado. But that's kind of the caliber of the trade you get when you trade <laughs> players at the same position who are the same age for each other. So in honor of uh, Donnie Scott and Oscar Mercado, Who you got in the great Zach Collins versus Reese McGuire trade of 2022? Which one are you betting on for the greater career war over the rest of their careers? I'd say Reese McGuire. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's probably the safer bet. If only because, again, I think he could actually catch. Right. (laughs) And Zach Collins is pretty bad at that, so. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you, Ryan, for looking that up. It is... Not an unprecedented trade, but it is indeed a strange one and one that I probably would have written an entire article about back in my baseball prospectus days. Now I have stat blasts instead. So that was uh, tenuously connected to the AL East. Our next segment will be directly related to the AL East. We will be back in just a moment with Zach Cram and Bobby Wagner to preview the division team by team. One flew away, 
right, it's time to talk about the AL East. And to do so, we are joined by a couple of my colleagues from The Ringer, and sadly, former colleagues from The Ringer MLP show. One is Zach Cram. Welcome back, Zach. You didn't tell me to say hello. <laughs> you can say hello now. I said welcome back. You can say hello. Hello. There you go. And we are also joined by Bobby Wagner, producer of many Ringer podcasts, including the dearly departed Ringer Baseball Pods, RIP, as well as the host of his own excellent podcast, Tipping Pitches. Hello, Bobby, or please say hello, Bobby. I, unlike Zach, know how to say hello without being prompted (laughs) the exact phrase to say. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you both. And unfortunately, Michael Bauman couldn't be with us today because he's in mourning about Lance Lynn's knee injury. That's not actually why, but he was unavailable for other reasons. But happy to have you both and happy to have you, Bobby, instead of Bauman, because instead of a fatalistic Phillies fan, we have a fatalistic Mets fan, which is a lateral move at best, I guess. But you're a day early for the end. East preview, but thanks for doing the AL East preview instead. It's generous to call that a lateral move. I think most people are sick of fatalistic Mets fans, which is why I will keep that paired back. I assume that's why you didn't invite me on for the NL East preview. Yeah, I'm sure that you are sad enough about uh, DeGrom as it is that we didn't have to give you the floor for half an hour or so, but catatonic is the word, Ben. Catatonic. So the AL East is a pretty good division, I would say. That is my expert analysis. I guess that's true almost every year, but sometimes it's a two-team race. Sometimes it's a three-team race. This year, there are four good teams in the AL East, and I'll just leave everyone in suspense until later in the episode about what the fifth (laughs) one is. But I think a lot of people are picking four teams to come out of the AL East and make the playoffs, which is too many teams for one division. Stop hogging all of the good playoff teams, AL East. There are six divisions. You cannot have a third of the playoff teams in your division. And yet that is what is happening here, potentially. Do you guys think this is the best the AL East has been? I didn't ask you to pre-rank the AL East or anything, but is this peak AL East? Like ever? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, maybe there isn't like a super team or maybe there is. There's a lot of ringer enthusiasm about the Blue Jays these days. I will get that out of the way early, but I don't know. There should be. Maybe these aren't the best we've ever seen. The Yankees, for instance. I mean, maybe it's not the best version of some of these teams, but combined and the fact that there are four of them that have a pretty credible shot at winning the division potentially or at least making the playoffs. I mean, it is pretty strong. I think it partially depends on how you're defining best not to get too pedantic this early in the podcast, but (laughs) whether you value like two or three amazing teams versus four really good teams, because I would not put these Yankees or these Red Sox up with some of the previous additions we've had. But like, I don't know, would you have preferred the Padres and the Dodgers and Giants to all win 96 games last year? Or was it more fun to have the Dodgers and Giants each winning 106 or 107 in San Francisco's case and the Padres being out of the race? I think we've seen that version in the AL East before, but not necessarily with four teams like this all at once. Yeah, right. Right now, right now, and like these things can change and blah, blah, blah. But like right now, the Blue Jays project, at least for us at Fangraphs, to be the second best team in baseball. The only team better than them right now is the Dodgers. And then it goes Braves, Astros, Yankees. Red Sox are down like further than that. But this this division boasts two of the four best teams and three of the best five in the American League. 
So and projections hate the rays as usual, I guess. Right, and that's the other thing. It's like <laughs> and 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 they do, but like not by very much actually, like compared to what they normally think of this confusing little franchise. Like if you count the rays, we they have four of the top six teams in the American League. The only <laughs> the only teams uh in that contingent that aren't from the AL East are the projected division winner Astros and White Sox. So mm-hmm. they're very good. It's a good division. Meg, I can't believe you gave away that the Orioles are not one of the teams in the top four. Ben was saving (laughs) it for suspense. I I was trying to do a tease there. Come on. Can I? I mean, it's like, I get it. I get you're trying to do a tease, but they're literally (laughs) projected to be the worst team in baseball. Now everyone's just going to turn off the episode because we've spoiled the ending already. (laughs) All right. Well, Zach, you should know that it's never too early to get pedantic on this podcast. Thank you for clarifying. All right. So let's get into the teams here. And I don't even know where to start. We've kind of been loosely going from best to worst, but not in any preset order. So I guess we should start with the Blue Jays just because they do have the best projection, according to Fangraphs, and we're all excited about them, I think. And arguably, you could make the case that they were the best team last year, even though they didn't make the playoffs at all. So we're going to go through our six categories that will loosely spur some discussion for each team. And because we have two guests today, we don't have to have an answer from each of you if you have the same answers for some of these categories, as is likely, but feel free to hop in wherever and we will try to direct traffic. So we're starting, as usual, with best off-season move or favorite off-season move. Zach, you want to go first here? Yeah. So I think uh, the Matt Chapman trade is obviously number one here. They didn't seem to have to give up much, and Matt Chapman is awesome. Even last year when he was the worst hitter he had ever been, he was still a a three-and-a-half-win player. And to be so good at defense that you're a a three-and-a-half-win player, even as an average hitter, is pretty remarkable. If some of that ticks back up, obviously he was uh, dealing with some injuries over the last few years, then he is a legitimate MVP candidate and add him into this lineup. uh, It's hard to imagine how he doesn't really fit and make them better. Mm -hmm. You have a different answer, Bobby, or was that yours too? No, that was my answer too. In fact, I I even wrote that exact sentence out, basically, (laughs) that he was a three and a half win player last year with a 7.16 OPS. I mean, he's kind of an incredible player. Like, he basically doesn't need to hit at all. And if he reverts back to anything like 2018 or 2019, this lineup is basically impossible to navigate for essentially every other team in this division who is has some question marks in their starting rotation i think it's pretty terrifying to to add him into this lineup and and think that he might bounce back at all yeah worst offseason move was releasing greg bird minutes before we started recording today which uh saddens me greatly i don't know where greg bird was gonna play (laughs) are we all still believers in the birdissance is (laughs) everyone here still still i still believe i will never not believe in greg bird and he actually was hitting quite well in spring training but it's a tough lineup to crack i believe that the blue jays have a pretty good first baseman already so tough tough lineup but someone will be made happy by greg bird maybe yeah but the jokes won't be as good so really too bad can we like just make a I, I will take the contrarian perspective here just so that we mention them before but like boy is this a fun rotation now and boy have they brought in some reinforcements like lest we forget they added kevin gausman they brought in kikuchi who 
did well to bet on himself because he certainly did better than the option he had with the Mariners would have afforded him. So it's like now this rotation is Berrios and Gausman and Ryu and Manoa and Kikuchi. And, you know, there are some injury concerns with all of those guys, or at least some of them. But like, that's pretty great. Unless we forget they extended to Jose Berrios. So, you know, they get to like enjoy him for a little while. I don't know. This is good. This is a good baseball team, you guys. Pretty yeah. good. <laughs> Which makes the next couple of questions pretty hard because the categories are biggest strength and biggest weakness. And I guess it's all relative because I don't know that there is a real weakness on this team. But Bobby, you want to go first this time? You have a, a biggest strength. There's not. Well, biggest strength, I would say, is just the lineup as a whole. Like they, yeah. they can do essentially everything. There's guys that hit for power. There's guys that get on base. There's guys that see a lot of pitches like they are going to be very, very hard to face. Biggest weakness was probably the hardest of any category of the entire division with the Blue Jays for me, which is incredible because, you know, they're the Blue Jays. They usually have a pretty big weakness, but I guess the back half of the rotation, despite what you said, Meg, I do have some question marks about like how much they can hold up and what their plan really is. If Shikuchi kind of does his, you know, yo-yo back and forth between having a really good season, promising season and kind of having a really bad season. So, I, I guess that would be the one question mark, but I don't really want to pick nets here. Like, I think that they're a pretty well-rounded, pretty incredible team with without an obvious weakness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote for biggest weakness, and I don't know if this really counts, but losing Ray and Semyon, just because they yeah. bring in Gaussman, they bring in Kikuchi, they bring in Chapman, and it it's really exciting, and they were such a good team last year, but they also, I believe, lost more free agent war just in the, those two players than any other team this year because Ray won the Cy Young and Semyon finished third in MVP voting. They were both healthy all year, so they aren't necessarily like adding Chapman and Gaussman so much as using them to replace guys who were already awesome last year and they have help elsewhere like George Springer was hurt for a lot of last season and he should be healthy this year but it's not necessarily like oh they won x amount of games and you can just add Chapman's and Gaussman's value there it's a replacement so I think they're still going to be awesome they're my pick to win the division and maybe go even farther than that because they underperformed their Pythagorean record so much last year so as Ben mentioned earlier they were really like a 99 win team uh, as opposed to in the low 90s but it's not quite like they're adding to a 100 win roster already well, and I think that we can, you know, remember that Gaussman had some had some difficulty down the stretch for the Giants, and like you, you always do wonder with two pitch guys, like what's what's going to happen there. And I, I think you know, if you look at their bullpen, like Romano's really great, although perhaps not an expert dog walker. We have learned perhaps bad at walking <laughs> dogs, but like apart from him, like you have a bunch of solid but not spectacular guys in the bullpen. So like you kind of maybe if you wanted to worry about something, like if you're prone to anxiety that you could concentrate some energy there. But yeah, it is hard to pick one because they're just they're just pretty good ball club. Just pretty good ball club. And they get to play at home, like actually at home in a real way, in a way they haven't in two years. So that's got to be nice because who doesn't love sleeping in their own bed? I did, to that point, Meg, write down vaccine mandate, question mark, as uh, yeah. the biggest strength. Because who knows how many wins that'll save them. But yeah. they could, they could yeah. win the division if they get an extra two wins out of that. Now, yeah. that is definitely, that was going to be one of my answers in the interesting storyline yeah. that will last throughout Same the season me, yeah. as, as long as that mandate is in place. I mean, now we're going to talk about the Yankees shortly, and they no longer have to deal with the vaccine mandate in New York, which was uh, lifted just because uh, 
I guess famous people get <laughs> their way sometimes and performers got exempted just because they lobbied City Hall basically. So the Yankees seemed not to be worried about that for good reason. But the Blue Jays, I know that they have claimed that maybe it's not just an advantage because it affected potentially how they made moves in the offseason and who they could sign and who they could not sign, etc. And maybe some players would have been less willing to go there, which could always be true. But especially now, even so, though, I mean, you would have to think that we'll be able to calculate this after the fact, presumably. It's not really something you can project because we don't really know who's vaccinated or who's not or who will get the vaccine or whether the rule will change. But after the fact, if there is reporting about, oh, so-and-so didn't make the trip to Toronto and we all know why, and at the end of the season, you could probably calculate the impact of that, then it seems like it could potentially be substantial, which in this division might actually make a difference, I guess. So... I wonder, though, with Jordan Romano, you mentioned his his dog walking. So he had a, a mild left ankle sprain, it was described at, while he was walking his dog, and he stepped in a hole in the road. So I, I guess it's not so much that it was a dog walking injury as it was just a, a hole in the road injury. He could have just been walking without the dog. Maybe he was more distracted because he had the dog. Yeah. Initially, it seems like one of those like weird baseball injuries, like someone sneezed and hurt themselves or cut themselves on a can opener or whatever. It was definitely in that genre. But I guess if there's a hole in the road, that can happen with or without the dog. You've clearly never walked my dog who finds every hole in every road and sprints aggressively towards it, dragging me behind her. Yeah. Relatable King Romano right here. Yeah. I only have dachshunds. I'm I'm like the queen with the corgis with my dachshunds. I always have one. Actually, the, the queen has dorgies, I think. They're like part dachshund, actually. Little known fact. But my dachshunds are scared in the city. And they don't like to go out and be walked. They like going out in the country. So I have not dealt with this personally. Have never sprained my ankle walking one. So I guess that takes us to breakout pick. Anyone have a Blue Jays breakout? I said one of the catchers. I still believe in Danny Jansen. <laughs> I think Alejandro Kirk could be a really good hitter this year. And they just traded Reese McGuire for Zach Collins. But I also think to give a hint of my next answer, like if Moreno just forces his way to the majors this year as well, I think yeah. at least one of the catchers will be good this year. And that'll like make their lineup even deeper because right now, a roster resource has Jansen hitting ninth. And if you have an average hitter at catcher at the bottom of your lineup, then that just, you know, if he gets on base ahead of Springer and Guerrero, he'll score a lot of runs. Yeah, I chose Kirk just because, frankly, almost only because his BABIP last year was 234. And that's that's pretty low. He was at the bottom 2% of sprint speed, so that has something to do with it, but probably not everything to do with it you know i don't know how much he'll actually catch right now like he's projected to do some DHing. yeah they have other catchers on the roster if there are some injuries i'm sure that they will throw him back there his framing didn't great great out too terrible last year but it wasn't great either but i still think that i think his bat plays and i think that he would suck to face at the bottom of this lineup as zach pointed out yeah, as long as we don't see Zach Collins catching, I'm I'm happy with any configuration of catcher that they want to throw. <laughs> it's not fun for the the framing enthusiasts amongst us because he can't frame even a little bit, not even a little. It's really bad. I know Vlad predictably broke out last year, but did you guys see the quote from Blue Jays manager Charlie Montoyo, who himself was just extended on Sunday? He said of Vlad Guerrero Jr., he could be a thirty thirty guy if he tried. Because he's big, people don't think he's fast. Can you imagine? What? 
Vlad Jr. Uh, as a 30-30 guy, how many times would he have to attempt to steal a base to successfully steal 30? <laughs> That's like, I, I mean, okay, maybe Vlad's speed is slightly underrated just because he has like gotten himself into better shape yeah. and he dropped weight last year and maybe has dropped more this year. And, you know, his sprint speed was in the 44th percentile last year, which was an improvement, but people don't think he's fast. I mean, he's not fast. He's maybe faster than you think of him being, but I just can't imagine what would have to happen for Vlad to steal 30 bases. I don't want him to try to do that. Yeah, me either. I was just trying to quickly look up how many attempts he even had. Yeah, he's stolen five career bases, guys. Yeah, five (laughs) in seven attempts. I mean, (laughs) decent ratio, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. If he tried to steal uh, 60, maybe he could steal 30. I don't know. I definitely don't want him to try to steal 60 bases. Don't think the Blue Jays should want that to happen. Where does this rank on the irrational manager confidence in comparison to Dave Roberts? Like, did Montoya try to take that back or what? I think the odds of this happening are definitely lower than the odds of the Dodgers winning the World Series, right? I mean, there's like a, what, 15% chance of the Dodgers winning the World Series, according to the Fairgrounds play odds. Not a 15% chance of Vlad stealing 30. This is like, you hear all kinds of irrationally optimistic predictions in spring training. I used to do a series of articles on that at Baseball Prospectus, where I went back and looked at things that people on teams predicted in spring training, and very often they did not come true. And often they're like, oh, we're going to run a lot this year. Like, that's a a very common spring prediction. So this is, I mean, this is the most extreme example of that. I cannot imagine. I actually just looked up his statistical record, and I think you're selling him short. Back in 2016 in rookie ball, he stole 15 (laughs) bases in just 62 games. Multiply that out to 162 games, and I think Vlad's going to steal 39 bases this year. Just an indication of how bad the defenses can be in rookie ball. I mean, I'm open to the idea that we, we tend to have an overly narrow understanding of athleticism, right? Like, I think that the Blue Jays are a great example of this. Like Alejandro Kirk is a big dude, but he is athletic in his own way. But there's like athletic and then there's being a base runner. I just, you know, it's nice that his manager is is stoked for him being in like what is probably literally the best shape of his life. But we probably don't want Vlad to try to steal that many bases because the odds of him damaging himself seem much higher, or at least running into outs seem higher than him actually achieving anything like a, a like, I don't know, 70, 80% success rate there. So Vlad, you just, you know, keep bopping and then you mm-hmm. don't have to worry about it. A great way to never have to steal a base is to just hit home runs. You know who else doesn't want him stealing 30 bases is the second baseman who's covering the bag <laughs> as he's sliding in 60 times, potentially. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. Is there a most important rookie on this roster, either a holdover or someone who could be called up during the year? I picked Moreno just on the off chance he comes yeah, up. I, I'm not really sure how many rookies will play a role on this team now that Nate Pearson no longer counts. Yeah. Is Alec Manoa rookie eligible or no? No. No. No, he graduated. So yeah, it's probably it's probably Moreno. It'll be such an interesting contrast because they have had these like you know, like they have they have Alejandro Kirk catching. And then you have Moreno, who's like one of the most athletic catchers in the minors. <laughs> I think that when we ran the Blue Jays list, Eric Longenhagen described him as the most athletic catcher since JT Real Muto. So it will be a, a, a delightful visual contrast, if nothing else. But he is he is quite talented and I think we will definitely see him at some point this year. So I don't really know who else we would maybe answer except for him. Yeah. 
All right. Well, any other interesting storylines about the Jays? We talked about the vaccine mandate. We talked about the fact that they'll be home all season. What else? The regression from underperforming their Pythag. It's just a good, fun team. So, yeah. Will Carson get a ring? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm. Mm-hmm. I'm invested in that as a as a through line here. Yep. So, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what else there is. I mean, I'm interested in almost every player on this roster. I guess Pearson is pretty interesting to me. Yeah. I just he was such a huge prospect and has sort of failed to launch thus far and has had injuries, but yeah. it hasn't been that long since everyone was extremely excited about him coming up. So if he yeah. could get things together, that'd be great too. And I don't know. I'm excited for season two of the Manoa friendship, I think, with uh, Ryu. Those guys mm-hmm. seem to be buddies and, and besties. And yeah, I don't know. Just a just a great team. Maybe you get a, a healthy George Springer this year. It's just it'll be bopping all year long. So it should be fun. Bopping. All right. I guess we can move on. But before we do, I will just uh, apologize to the Jays fans out there for perhaps slighting the song OK Blue Jays in our most recent episode. Took some flack for uh, overlooking this song because we were talking last time about the song We Are Cleveland, the new Guardians theme song. The much maligned. Yeah, (laughs) if we're going to call it that. The hype theme, whatever it is, and we didn't mention OK Blue Jays as a good, a rare good example of a team song. I don't think we can call it a a fight song exactly, but we were talking about the Cleveland song just in terms of whether it actually is a baseball song because it doesn't even really mention baseball in any way. OK Blue Jays is just the opposite of that, really. It's like it just lists the things that are in baseball. It says you've got a diamond, you've got nine men, you've got a hat and a bat, and that's not all. You got the bleachers, got them from spring till fall. You got a dog. I don't know why you have a dog. Do you have a dog at the ballpark? Jordan Romano has a dog. And a drink and an umpire's call. What do you want? Let's play ball. They mean a hot dog, Ben. They mean a hot dog. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. You got a hot dog at the ballpark. uh, Hot dogs are real dogs to me. Did anyone yell at you about Go Cubs Go? No, no one did. That song, I mean, I get it. It's it's catchy. It's kind of maddeningly simplistic. It does get stuck in your head, so I guess it does the job. But okay, Blue Jays, it's not really a fight song. It's just like, okay, Blue Jays. It's like, it's not let's, let's go get them. It's okay, Blue Jays. All right, let's play ball, I guess. But it is unquestionably a baseball song, and it has been recorded by a, a great Toronto band, Zeus. So I'm sorry for neglecting it in our previous discussion. All right, Yankees. Should we go to Yankees next? We can continue to disrespect the Rays. And I guess I will uh, hand it off to resident Yankees fan Zach Cram to talk about best offseason move. I don't know if whether, like our editor-in-chief at The Ringer, Ben Glicksman, you are an upset Yankees fan who is not happy with the moves that they made or did not make this offseason or whether you see the upside there. But what do you think about their offseason as a whole? And are there any moves that you liked? I will let you decide how I feel about the Yankees offseason by my choice of best offseason move as convincing Mayor Eric Adams to remove the vaccine mandate. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) And that's because, like, I think Josh Donaldson is a very good player. Like uh, a lot of Yankees fans, I loved having Gio Urshela there, but I acknowledge that Donaldson is better, but I can't ignore how that move was wrapped up in the rest of the Yankees' moves this offseason, which puzzled me. So it's hard to praise just 
adding Donaldson when that move meant they paved the way for the Twins to sign Correa instead of the Yankees signing Correa and going out and getting Kiner Falefa and and Rortvet to improve the defense but make the offense worse and the offense needed improvement which I'll get to in a minute so I will stick with uh, making sure that all of the Yankees can play in Yankee Stadium and maybe they won't be able to in Toronto we won't know until they actually visit and we find out which players are and are not vaccinated but that could have been a real problem if, uh, say, Aaron Judge, who did not necessarily answer with the most confidence about whether he was able to play, can actually play in like 150 games this year. Mm-hmm. Bobby, you got any moves other than convincing Eric Adams to <laughs> make an exception? Other than dark money lobbying? Uh, let me think on that one. Well, I, for one, am just happy we can be on a podcast where we can admit that Zach is a Yankees fan as opposed to being on the Ringer MLB show and him pretending not to have a fandom I didn't for the know. whole time. I I. <laughs> I am a fan. I am nowhere near the fan I used to be. I feel like I am midway through my evolution from being a diehard Yankees fan who would like feel angry at night if they blew a game to mm-hmm. acknowledging that I'm going to end up like Ben Lindbergh and no <laughs> <Yep>. longer care. <laughs> Been there. It's not so bad on the other side. Um, no, I chose the the Kiner Falefa and Donaldson trade. Mm-hmm. I don't really love the trade necessarily i think it makes them marginally better but i don't think that there was anything else that really rose above that in this yankees offseason mm-hmm. all right well lukewarm reviews at best <laughs> on the yankees offseason all right strengths weaknesses zach you want to go again so i think the yankees actually have a, a big broad strength and that's their pitching right now the fan depth charts have the Yankees at number one in both the bullpen and the starting rotation. And I don't yeah, know if I do. totally, yeah, I don't know if I totally buy that in the rotation because I think it's perhaps undervaluing depth. And I would put like the Brewers ahead of them, for instance. But having Garrett Cole is a really good place to start. I think Jordan Montgomery is incredibly underrated. And Luis Severino's back. Nestor Cortez was really good last year. Uh, and the bullpen is awesome. As always, they have not just Chapman, but Loisaga and Chad Green and Clay Holmes and just a lot of really solid pitchers. I think last year when the Yankees made their run in August and got them to the playoffs, it was really their pitching. It wasn't the offense that led them. They were allowing like two to three runs in a lot of those games, and they might have to win that way again this year. But at least until players start getting hurt, they have the manpower to do so. I chose their lineup as their biggest strength still. I mean, I know that there are obvious holes, and I know that the Connor Falefa trade doesn't, and Donaldson trade doesn't necessarily fill all of them. And if you're a Yankees fan listening to this, you probably have all of the same complaints about how there's not a lot of lineup variability, and there's not a lot of athleticism in the field, and the defense is not great, and those are all still problems. But, I mean, if they stay healthy, like, you know, not perfectly healthy, but healthy by their own standards, I think Judge... Stanton, Rizzo, like that's not a lineup that I would want to face. Hicks is a, another one who's been unable to stay on the field entirely, but I still think that that's a lineup with a lot of power. And Gallo was horrible last year after they traded for him for yeah, like a, really a long stretch. And if he's back to getting on base over a larger sample of being on the Yankees for longer, I still think that he improves their lineup a lot. And I don't know. I, I, I'm I not that bullish on the rotation, to be honest, because I think it is very thin. Like, I think they will be they will have backed themselves into a Luis Castillo trade where they might get fleeced for more than they want to if they want to stay, you know, neck and neck with some of the other teams in this division. Because as we talked about at the beginning, it's a really loaded division. And as soon as you lose Tyone, if 
Severino has any bumps in the road on his recovery. We're still in like the, we're seeing how Severino bounces back from pitching and spring training, you know, era of his recovery. So I love him. I think he's amazing. I think he has the potential to be like a Cy Young contender if he's healthy and back to the form that he was in, but he hasn't pitched like that for two years. So I think there are just a lot of outstanding question marks about their rotation. And I think it's weird that they weren't harder in on any of the starters in this market in this offseason. You shouldn't do what I'm about to do, right? So I want this is not good, like sabermetric practice. You shouldn't just like add up all the wars and be like they're going to be really great. But I, I will say, if you're looking for confidence that your your assertion that the lineup is solid is is right, is that we we currently have them projected for the second most like batting war of any team in baseball behind just the Dodgers. So who again just remain really good, and we have to talk about them all the time. So I. I think that your assessment that they are going to hit well is is warranted, even if there are guys on here who might miss like big swaths of time with injury or what have you. Like this is a talented and stacked lineup. A lot of big, a lot of big beef boys. We can still do the jumbo package in the outfield. I'm thrilled. Yeah, weaknesses, Zach. It's funny. Bobby's weakness was my strength, and I won't <laughs> say that my weakness is his strength, but it's kind of similar. I do not trust their lineup depth, and that is both the players who will hit at the bottom of the lineup because they made a concerted effort to go after defense instead of offense, even though they ranked just 10th in runs last year. But also, I don't know what happens when the players get injured. Josh Donaldson is not a paragon of health. Aaron Hicks is not a paragon of health. Even last year, Judge and Stanton combined for more than 1,200 plate appearances, and the offense still just ranked 10th in the American League in runs. And I don't know what happens if one of those two players who have considerable injury histories goes down yeah. for an extended period of time. Like they have DJ LeMahieu who can go anywhere in the infield and that's a strength, but their backup outfielder right now is Tim LaCastro. And uh, Ben, you mentioned our editor-in-chief at the Ringer, Ben Glucksman, before. And one debate we have had both this offseason and last is I still think they should bring back Brett Gardner. They don't really have <laughs> anyone else to fill in in center field if Aaron Hicks gets hurt. And I think Gardner's like the best yeah. option available. It's like Groundhog Day. Like every <laughs> April rolls around and it's like, okay, when's Brett Gardner's phone going to ring? Yep. It's his time. It, it, like it's there's nobody time. else. There's nobody else available. And a, a lot of their top prospects are like double A or lower. So they don't really have the triple A depth either. If players go down, I, I just don't really know what happens comparing this team to like Tampa, which we'll get to in a minute. I know the projections have Yankees ahead of them, but get to June and July and August. And I see Tampa having a much stronger roster because they have the reinforcements that the Yankees don't. Meg, how is um how are the projections factoring in the fact that Kyle Higashioka homers once per game for like multiple month stretches? <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, you're skipping to breakout pick here, but we actually answered a listener email about this uh, episode 1807. <laughs> Someone asked us, what if Kyle Higashioka next season had a 10 Fangraphs war season out of nowhere at age 32? <laughs> Would that one incredible season be enough to erase all his previous mediocrity and lack of fame for him to make the 2023 MLB The Show cover? And as we speak, he is leading the Grapefruit League with seven home runs. So it is happening. No wonder they needed to trade Gary Sanchez to free up space for the big power bat of Kyle Higashioka. We all know that homering a lot in spring training means you're going to homer a lot in the, the season. What, was it Jake yes. Fox? Was that the Oriole like a decade yeah, that ago? Was, that was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, some slight predictive value to having a super hot spring, but uh, not a perfect correlation. Some. I mean, I think that the real answer here is that like 
you don't have the arms that Ben Rortvet has if if he can't hit home runs. And I know that like yeah. power has not been his thing historically. It's like it doesn't do it, and it's shocking because mm-hmm. of the arms. Yes. But I think he should. He should try. He should decide to be more like Tyler O'Neill than like Yandy Diaz in terms of what the arms <laughs> suggest he should be able to do. Exactly. I feel very nervous about their catching situation just generally. <laughs> I mean, I know that that Sanchez wasn't um, thriving uh, in New York, but I feel a little. I feel kind of nervous for them when it comes to catching, but I, th- I think that the the depth in the in the rotation is really where I, I see them being potentially vulnerable. Although we thought that too uh, last year, and then it ended up being fine. So yeah, it would be a nice change to have a catcher who can do the catching part at least. I yeah. know that. Uh, I mean, I I believed in Gary. I still kind of believe in Gary, but it was frustrating to watch him at times. <laughs> so. I will also note that, uh, yes, while Brett Gardner remains in play, I think the Blue Jays were reportedly talking to Brett Gardner as well. So that would be intriguing. But Aaron Hicks, speaking of Vlad and a 30-30 season, Aaron Hicks has said that he wants to have a 30-30 season as well. Although he's like, he plays 30 games a season. Yeah, so I was going to say, like, like 30, 30 games <laughs> and, and then 30 more. Does that, yeah. Is that what he means by that? Sure. Yeah. Well, that would like double last year's total. <laughs> So that'd be, that'd be good. And that would bring him right into line with uh, his totals from the previous couple seasons. Although we can't blame him for 2020, I guess. But I like Aaron Hicks when he's healthy. It's just that that's a huge caveat for him. Is it out of the question that, you know, if something happens to Hicks, like just stick one of the beef boys out there? Because we talk all the time about how Gallo and Judge are really underrated as defenders and they're great corner guys and they're not total strangers to center. I mean, I guess there's a health concern, but it wouldn't be like the worst defensive solution to have one of those guys out there. And then I guess you'd have to put Stanton out in a corner and then there's the injury risk there too. Although he also hit better last year when he was playing the field. So there's that consideration too. I don't know. I'm just saying like, you know, Stanton, even when he was with the Marlins was kind of in that same camp of underrated defensive outfielder. So that would be a way to get all those bats in the lineup and, you know, at least not have a huge hole defensively in center, but it would kind of depend on everyone staying healthy. It's my general opinion that you can't not play an outfielder who plays in right regularly, like Gallo or or Judge in center, just because you're worried about them getting hurt. Like if you're going to extend Aaron Judge, which Carlos Beltran <laughs> may have <laughs> broken that they already have. I don't know. At least yeah. it wasn't his niece's anonymous Twitter account this time. His, it was actually his first day with the, the, with the Yes Network, his first broadcast. He, yes. If he you're going to extend Aaron or Judge. suggests that there is an extension and then has to walk it back. Yeah. He needs to be able to make a throw from center field or like make plays in center field. Even if he does the Bryce Harper, doesn't lay out for everything and his defense kind of suffers for it so that he can remain healthy. Even if he does that, he needs to be able to play center field like they don't need to just sign brett gardner in the in the instance that you know aaron hicks gets hurt in my opinion mm-hmm. all right breakout pick anyone other than kyle Higashioka? i picked clay holmes uh clay holmes i think could be the next great yankee reliever they got him in kind of an, an under discussed trade last year which seemed like just a way to clear some 40-man space they sent uh, diego castillo and hoy park to pittsburgh and holmes had always had control problems with the Pirates in over 100 career innings. He walked more than six batters per nine. But with the Yankees after the the deadline last year, he just had four walks in 28 innings. He boosted his strikeout rate. He had a 1.61 ERA, a 2.1 FIP. So I think 
add him to Chapman, who is a free agent after this year, and Loisaga and Green, and they're going to be in really good shape, even if you know Chapman has his annual four-week stretch when he can't hit the strike zone or somebody gets hurt. Holmes is under control for a while, and I think he's a very good reliever now that the Yankees have figured out how to get him to throw strikes. I mean, I know that the like the shortstop who is promised is Volpe, but like Oswald Peraza is floating around in the high minors, and he's he's like a top one hundred prospect. So there's the the chance that like something weird happens on the middle infield, and he ends up pressed into duty sooner rather than later, and then he might have a chance to break out. Can we can can Davy Garcia break out still? Is it possible for him to <laughs> I break wrote it down. <laughs> out? Like Davy Garcia or, or Luis Gill? Like th- those guys, you know, on a team that might end up hurting for pitching depth at some point, like they could perhaps break out and have an opportunity to do that. I mean, they do have talented guys in the high minors. We're all excited, as I said, about Volpe, but there are other names here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, even if those guys don't play, they're kind of the most important rookies in that they contributed to the shortstop situation that we have here. I don't know how much of it don't was... Don't blame that on them. <laughs> That's not their fault. Yeah, I don't know how much of it was uh, Yankees <laughs> nutting and not wanting to <sighs> spend more than they are spending. <laughs> Sorry, Meg, it's, so it's much caught regret. on. <laughs> I know, it's really a problem. <laughs> don't know how much of it is that and how much of it is not wanting to fill that position with Volpe and Peraza coming along. But yeah, I mean, we'll see maybe maybe Kiner Falefa could be a breakout guy who knows he hit well down the stretch last season average wise and I think he made some swing changes this offseason so you never know it seems like there could be a bit more there offensively all right well I don't know if there's a, a rebound guy we don't have a rebound or a bounce back category but could you put DJ LeMayhew in that category because right now that contract's not looking like the best after last season and there's the question of how much of that was maybe the ball not carrying quite as well and LeMahieu being maybe one of the bigger beneficiaries of the juice ball but also he was playing through a sports hernia for at least part of that time so I don't know he's going to be moving around positions it's not clear where he will get most of his playing time necessarily but I could believe that there could be a, a bounce back in that bat. That was originally when the Yankees signed him before the 2019 season, what his role was going to be. I don't believe LeMahieu even started in his first opening day because that's when they were healthy and they had Greg Bird and Andujar and even Troy Tulowitzki started opening day that year before LeMahieu joined wow. the fold. Yeah, Troy Tulowitzki. I, am, I Remember feel when ancient. he was a Yankee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I don't really uh, anticipate it being a problem getting him playing time. And Ben, like you mentioned, I think he'll bounce back a little bit my most important rookie if we're kind of in that category I think Clark Schmidt is a name we should mention just to Meg's point about a lack of pitching depth Schmidt has looked really good in spring training this year and is probably I don't know number seven if a couple guys get hurt so I anticipate him having a role this year in a way that like if Kiner Falefa doesn't go down I don't know if Peraza actually plays at the major league level this year that's fair Mm -hmm. can we say Josh Donaldson (laughs) sure to bounce back i mean he's no Mm -hmm. longer a rookie famously 36 but like he's 36 (laughs) you know if we if we were going to name a a bounce back i mean a lot of that would be health related but you know that's Mm -hmm. okay yeah i wrote severino for the same reason just because anytime you miss that long and you throw that hard like there there could be control issues there could be health problems but last we saw him i mean he was just he was really incredible like under three like 
ton of strikeouts and he looked like super confident. So I just hope that, you know, for, for everyone watching sake that he can be that again. Any other interesting storylines? I guess there is Brian Cashman, who I believe is in a contract year, and I don't know how many Yankees fans are pleased with him right now. You could say the same about Aaron Boone, but he got an extension. Cashman, as far as I know, has not, and like Billy Bean, he's in a walk year, and also like Billy Bean, as I wrote last year, they are about to set a new record for the longest continuous stint with one team for a GM 25 years which will break Cashman's distant predecessor, Ed Barrow, the Yankees Hall of Famer GM. And uh, that's a really, really long time to last (laughs) with one team. But it's uh, been a while since the Yankees last won a World Series. Other than that, I don't know. Anything else that you are all curious about? I guess I'm curious, you know, if if we're coming up on the deadline in August and they're in the thick of what we anticipate being a very competitive division, and they've perhaps had some attrition on the pitching side, like how important are the various CBT thresholds going to be to them as they try to improve the roster for the the second half and the stretch run? Like, are they going to try to hew closely to staying under? Are they going to allow themselves to perhaps take on payroll as a way of supplementing the clubs? So I, I think a lot depends on where they are come August 2nd at 6 p.m., which is what our trade deadline is now, because what a, what a day to work all day, but a Tuesday. Great day for that. But they have proven themselves to be very strangely budget conscious for being literally the Yankees. And I self-handcuffed. Am, oh, yeah, that's a good that's that's good. And so uh, I'm curious, like how committed to staying handcuffed <laughs> they they are if it's the difference between, you know, pushing themselves ahead of the the Blue Jays or the Rays or the Red Sox and sort of standing pat and hoping for something to improve. So that's one I'm <laughs> I'm keeping an eye on because right now their luxury tax estimate per roster resource has them at 262 million for 2022 so that would mean them looking up at either the 270 or 290 thresholds if they're going to push through to something higher than where they are at the moment i don't know it'll be mm-hmm. interesting to see yep and i guess uh, there's the question of aaron judge and his <laughs> extension which may or may not have happened already and could happen this week but if it doesn't then there will be the question about him walking and replacing him And I guess uh, the Yankees have some new coaches, including a new base running coach in the majors, Matt Tallarico. And Lindsay Adler wrote a a good piece about this the other day at The Athletic. We talked about how base running was a big weakness for the Yankees last year. Sounds like they're doing a lot of things differently there. And again, it's easy to say that in spring training and forecast better success on the bases, but couldn't be much worse. All right. Let's go to the Rays, and I guess there are not as many offseason moves to choose from when we're talking about the Rays. Zach, anything you like? I liked extending Wander Franco. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah, same. That's what I wrote. Yep. <laughs> That's a pretty obvious answer. Okay. All right. Moving on. So, <laughs> Guys, I didn't hate the Corey Kluber signing. Yeah. I mean, if there's one uh-huh. team that can really, you know, extend to the latter days of the Corey Kluber peak mm-hmm. i think that it's the rays unfortunately they couldn't do it for old friend michael Wa- michael waka but <laughs> they yeah. might be able to do it for kluber all right greatest strengths zach i wrote just depth in general obviously wander gives them an mvp candidate that they haven't really had but kind of the opposite when i was talking about the yankees i trust that first of all tampa has the the kind of platoons it needs to succeed throughout the season in a way that we know playoff odds 
kind of underrate. But also, if anyone goes down, they have so much depth at AAA, both in the bullpen and in the lineup, that I just think they'll be able to continue rolling throughout the entire season in a way that I'm not confident that the Yankees or Boston would be able to keep up with. So I think both with the actual prospects like Bruhan and, and Taylor Walls, who I can't remember if he's still prospect eligible, but like those guys aren't in, uh, projected to start. But even beyond them, players who I probably haven't even heard of who I'll look up in August and see <laughs> they're running like a 2.3 ERA or something like that. Yep. Weaknesses, Bobby, unless you have a different strength. No, I mean, I, I wrote down their bullpen is still a strength, like whether whether or not it's this exact collection of people who throw 99 miles per hour or whether it's a slightly different <laughs> based on a trade that happens in, in May, their bullpen and their confidence with how they use it is still, you know, in perpetuity a strength for the Rays. I wrote, for a weakness, I wrote their rotation is a little bit, I, th- I think there are just question marks with the injuries that they have. They obviously don't have glass now. Shane Baz is already having some elbow problems, and I imagine that they won't push him too hard, given that people are afraid of injured elbows, as they should be. <laughs> and then, you know, Brennan McKay had the thoracic outlet syndrome surgery, so... Glass now, presumably, is not going to be back this year. Right, right, exactly. He's more of a 2023 return, mm-hmm. and... I think that this was the thing that ultimately sank them in the playoffs last year, and that obviously is not representative of how they'll perform in the full 162-game season as it wasn't last year, but I do think that it is a question that they have not necessarily yet addressed. Yeah. Yep. I like Luis Patino a lot, Mm -hmm. and assuming Baz will be back sometime soon, I think we all like him a lot, and we like Shane McClanahan a lot. So, yeah, with the Rays, I I mean, it's hard to decide what is a starter and what is a reliever and what is the rotation and what is the bullpen. It's all just sort of an amorphous mass there, and there are enough good arms that you figure that they will get through it one way or another. But everything else you kind of have to like a lot, too. So, I mean, Franco just, you know, we don't typically single out one player as the strength for a team but he's going to be so good and it's just going to be so much fun for the Rays to have a super duper star who will be there forever or you know (laughs) he won't necessarily play out that entire contract with the Rays but you don't have to worry about him going anywhere for a while and the Rays like depth has been their strength for a long time and just avoiding bad players but they haven't as often had just like someone who's on the short list for the very best players in baseball. And Franco, I think, is already at that stage. He basically played at that stage in his rookie year at 20 years old. So what he can do in a sophomore season at 21 and a full season, I am very excited to see. So I don't know that we can uh, choose him for a breakout because he was already good, although he could certainly be so much better that maybe it'll qualify as a breakout. Does anyone have other breakout picks? I actually wrote down their other offseason addition, Brooks Raley, mm. because of two reasons. The first is that they actually signed Raley to a two-year, I believe, $10 million contract, which opened my eyes given how good the Rays are at just generating decent relievers, that they would actually go out and spend some money on another team's reliever. Raley was much better than his surface like ERA stats indicated last year, but there's one stat in particular that is impressive and presumably why the Rays were so interested in him, which is that last year, according to StatCast, Rayleigh allowed hard hit balls on just 6% of opposing swings, and that was the second lowest in the league. And his company was uh, top was Josh Hader. Number three was Austin Adams because he was very good even though he hit every other batter he faced. Uh, Number four was Devin Williams, and number five was Edwin Diaz. So that's basically 
the best relievers in the game and Brooks Raley. So I'm curious to see what the Rays do with him, how they use him, presumably not just as a loogie, but as someone who can go an inning or two at a time, uh, just like the next breakout reliever that the Rays got their hands on. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this counts. I don't know if this counts. He might have just been too good, obviously. But like, I'm really excited to see this year's version of Drew Rasmussen. Like, he was really quite good at times last year. So I'm excited to see more from him. I don't know. Other breakouts? Like, they have so many dudes in the minors. They have so many guys. This team is ridiculous. This team had 11 prospects in our top 100. That does include some guys who were 50 future values who fell outside of the top 100. But they had 11 dudes. They graduated five top 100 prospects the year before. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think that, like, that's, you know, that continues to be a strength here, too, because they can just go get guys if they really need them. So Mm -hmm. that part's nice. I wrote down Taylor Walls as a potential breakout. I mean, depending on how many at bats they actually are able to find for him, you know, with injuries or with platooning or whatever but he was obviously a highly touted prospect and played a little bit last year struck out a little bit more than he did in the minors but what rookie doesn't still walked like 13 percent of the time i don't know who else is a really natural breakout fit like you'd want to say wander but he's already he's already yeah he can't. broken out he already signed a 182 million dollar contract like the cat's out of the bag so i guess i guess taylor walls you can see him kind of sliding into that you know typical raise where did this guy come from all of a sudden he's incredible mm-hmm. he's the next joey wendell yeah you know i forgot that joey wendell was on the marlins and i'm like i'm not gonna enjoy the mets playing against joey wendell a bunch more that's not gonna be good for me i'm kind of interested in uh francisco mejia as a post type prospect who is actually an above average hitter last year obviously mike zunino's blocking him talk about a breakout but mejia can kind of play all over the diamond and he could have more in his bat too so he's another option but meg i wrote down rasmussen as my number two so i'm glad we're on the same page yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more from him. Mejia, you know, I just struggle with catchers who can't frame, so it's hard for me. <laughs> well, I guess that kind of covers our important rookie category, too, unless uh, anyone else wants to throw any other names into that ring. But just generally, I mean, we've talked before about how great the Rays affiliates were last year. And what was it? I think a collective 623 winning percentage for their minor league teams, which was like the best ever. And they made the playoffs or won championships at a lot of those levels. Kind of incredible. The Yankees, by the way, were not that far behind. They had a 595 winning percentage at their affiliates last year. So encouraging. I mean, that doesn't always mean that all of those teams are full of great prospects who will go on to make the major league teams good, but it can't hurt. And certainly in the Rays case, there's just a ton of young talent. And I don't know, is there anything else that you're all interested in about the Rays this year? I guess we don't have to worry about the two-team Montreal plan anymore. We don't have to talk about that in the short term. (sighs) Did we ever need to talk about it? Was it ever real? (laughs) No, probably not. (laughs) I am curious to see like what their stadium situation ends up resolving as, because I think we've heard the last of that two-city idea for now but i don't think that they're content with the drop so i am Mm -hmm. curious kind of what goes on there yep what do you make of the fact that they were reportedly in on freddie freeman for an actual nine-figure contract i don't know if it's just wishful thinking or not but the fact that the rays are so good like you know in, in june in july could they go out and actually add some money to this payroll probably not given their history but the freeman news 
kind of threw me for a loop just because I wouldn't have expected them to be in on someone for a multi-year deal for that much money at all. But Freeman is so talented and he would fit or he would have, I should say, fit so well in the middle of this lineup because for all its depth, besides Wander and and Brandon Lau, right? It's Lau, not Low. Lau on top. (laughs) They don't necessarily have like that big guy in the middle of the order who's going to hit 30 plus home runs. And I just Jerry, wonder. Disrespect Mike Zanino like that on <laughs> yeah. this podcast. Is he in the middle of the order? I thought he was no. the bottom of the order. He sure yeah. shouldn't be in the middle of the order, but he will hit 30 home runs. And for as much as I love like G Man Choi, he's not that kind of player. So is there the potential that they could add someone? They they traded Joe Ryan, a very good prospect for Nelson Cruz at last year's deadline. So yeah. If they're a little bit more aggressive, what does that look like? And I would encourage it because this race is so close, but so is this team. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Wander hit 30 at some point, not necessarily this season, but some season, even though that's not his strength. Like I could see it happening, but yeah, they could use a little more pop. Yeah. They, uh, wait, oh, this took me into a very different payroll page than the one I was looking for. (laughs) I was like, they sure do not have a $200 million payroll. That is very wrong. Yeah, I mean, like their payroll commitments. Inflation's gone crazy, Meg. <laughs> oh my gosh, you know they have like an eighty-six million dollar estimated payroll right now. So the I I guess if you want to be optimistic, you could say like they could add a meaningful contract and still not spend all that much. Is that a good thing? Who could say? <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go to the Red Sox now. Best offseason move for the Boston Red Sox, Bobby. I went with the obvious one. I went with Trevor Story for mm-hmm. six years, 140. It's always nice when you can just go out and sign really good players for, you know, market value contracts. Although I will say just right off the bat, I kind of hated the Red Sox offseason otherwise. Yeah. It didn't really answer a lot of the questions that rolled over from last year. I mean, they, I think, overperformed people's expectations last year. And then I think they were content to just kind of settle back and reinsert themselves into the timeline that they were on when they we're like, let's trade Mookie Betts. But uh, the Trevor Story signing, and I'm curious to hear what you all think about this, is it's kind of weird for me because now they've run into a sort of similar problem of not being able to give the big contracts to all the people they weren't going to be able to give the big contracts to because they had the Mookie Betts contract. So don't we have that same problem now with the Red Sox? Well, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, potentially, I guess. But uh, at least they're good now, it seems like still. They made it back to being good again, I think, faster than most people expected, faster than I expected after trading Mookie. So I'll give them that. I think it is important to remember for that question, they do have like a lot of money coming off after this year. So they might not be as worried about it. Like Martinez is a free agent after this year. Ivaldi is Vasquez, Hernandez, all $7 million of Michael Waka, uh, Rich Hill, you know, and his $5 million. So they're going from having like an estimated payroll this year of 218 to like a luxury tax estimate of $100 million next year. They're they're pulling some money off the books and they'll have to, you know, fill holes, obviously. And there will be guys who get arb raises, but this is not, you know, quite the same payroll situation they were looking at with bets. So mm-hmm. that's part of it. The story signing could also, if they anticipate Xander Bogarts leaving when he can opt out, he could backfill in a way that like when the Dodgers traded for Trey Turner, one of the advantages was if Seager left, then they could just slide Turner back over to shortstop and story could very well do that next year. If Bogarts leaves, I don't know 
if that's a good trade-off because Bogarts might be better than Story, but it, it seems kind of like an even balance there, not the right. downgrade that you would have had otherwise. Strengths of the Red Sox. Zach? I wrote down the the top six in the lineup. Seven, eight, nine have a lot more question marks, but this is a really good top six from Devers and Bogarts to Story, who we talked about. Martinez had a bounce back here last year. Hernandez had a breakout. Verdugo was good. So that that's a really good top six. It has left-right balance, which I think is overrated. Like, give me the Blue Jays lineup with all its right-handed hitters. I don't care. But it does have balance if you care about that. It has power. It has plate discipline. It has contact. So really tough lineup to work through, uh, you know, four or five times a game. Mm-hmm. Weaknesses, Bobby? I wrote the I wrote pitching generally. Mm-hmm. I actually like their rotation more than I thought I was going to like their rotation when I sat down to do the homework for this podcast. There are obviously health questions with with all of them, and there are yeah. kind of like chillers in it. What's yeah, not to like? That's true. There are kind of like length of resume questions with a guy like Tanner Houck, who I, who I love, but their bullpen is it could be pretty pretty bad, or it could be good. I don't really know. I I'm really terrible with predicting bullpens. I think Matt Barnes is pretty good. Deekman's okay. Whitlock was pretty good last year. Like there are, but then after that, it's it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. <laughs> like there are a lot of question marks, and there's always the possibility that relievers outperform what they did previously, and the correlation for them is much lower than you know something like starters or position players. But it doesn't look to be great. I can see the Blue Jays lineup hitting a lot of late game home runs off of them, and then blowing a lot of games that way. Yeah, Whitlock is getting stretched out to kind of be a piggyback guy with Rich Hill, which is interesting just because he was uh, such a, well, (laughs) out of nowhere guy last year after just being plucked from the Yankees system. So I'll be curious to see if he can succeed in that role as well. And then when you get Chris Sale back and uh, whether he can not make trips to Toronto, etc. And then I guess you'll have James Paxton coming back at some point too. So that, that should help. Yeah. I hate this rotation. Sorry, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Wait, you, weren't you the big Paxton guy? Weren't you the Paxton lover this whole time? This whole time you've I been love standing Paxton. him. He's on the 60-day IL. So is Chris Sale. As yeah. That was the whole problem the ago. whole time, Zach. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> now hold like, on. Uh, there was Because he has an injury. <laughs> yeah, there was a while where James Paxton's yes. injuries were fluky rather than his elbow. So there was a bit where it was like less dire than that this i am merely the moderator from what michael bauman and zach cram have been arguing about regarding james paxton for the better part of half a decade yes i think this team is really going to miss eduardo rodriguez who probably will have a great time in detroit now that he's no longer pitching in front of this red sox defense and had like one of the worst batted ball lucks of any starting pitcher last year but even if Hauk gets stretched out more even if whitlock begins to piggyback although i question I always question, like, if a guy is so good in that role, if you want to alter it, like, the Red Sox have the Daniel Bard history there, which is better off not mentioning. But Eovaldi was awesome last year. And I think unless he repeats that, this rotation is in a lot of trouble. They're counting on health from Hill and Sale and Paxton at some point, And I don't trust any of those guys. Michael Waka as the number four starter does not seem like a winning recipe. And they Bleak. don't really have a lot of depth in the minors right now, at least like top level AAA guys. So yeah. I don't know how they're going to last the whole season, especially if Eovaldi, their rock, has an injury history too. And if he gets hurt, all of a sudden this team could like they're not going to fall to last place or anything like that but i think of the four top teams here the red sox are the most likely to fall out of the race just because of the rotation troubles 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of what I thought last year, and then it just never really happened. <laughs> but I do sort of think the same thing this year. So that takes us to breakout. Do we have some Bobby Dalbeck believers on this call, or anyone else you want to mention? I'm more of a Tanner Houck guy myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 258 FIP last year, only 69 innings. I don't know how that looks over like 120 innings or if that is even possible but struck out 31 percent of the batters he faced last year he still gets a, a you know league average amount of ground balls and with that many strikeouts i think it plays well i love his slider playing off his fastball i just really like his delivery like i think his slider is really hard to pick up with how like whippy his arm action is so i think that my breakout pick is probably tanner hauck even though i think we saw a lot of him in the playoffs last year and i think people are familiar with him but over the course of a whole season he's probably my breakout i don't i don't know but maybe bobby dahlbeck will hit like 35 home runs i have no clue yeah i mean he was hitting like that in the second half last year 149 wrc plus and he was striking out a little less than he had been before he slugged 611 during that time so i've liked him for a while just so many strikeouts but he's cut down a bit on that which makes me believe a bit more i have jackie bradley jr as a bounce back after he was the worst hitter in the majors last year but Bauman's not here i thought we weren't (laughs) going to get a jackie bradley jr shout out (laughs) what if jackie bradley jr just can't like play outside boston he was quite good in boston for so long and then he leaves maybe he you know has has trouble adjusting to a new time zone a new location Mm. and he's just coming back home and milwaukee isn't in europe (laughs) (laughs) the famous time zone curse (laughs) it's not hard to bounce back from a 163 batting average he was so yeah just yeah not a big league hitter last year all right rookies anyone on your radar here (laughs) <laughs> i wrote down uh, don't everyone chime in at once i i actually uh unlike ben do not believe in bobby dahlbeck uh uh-huh. so i wrote down uh cassis from triple a mm-hmm. i think he could yeah. take over dahlbeck's role by midseason or force himself into the lineup in another way but uh dahlbeck right now uh, has a career strikeout rate above 30 percent and a, a walk rate in single digits and i looked at other active players who have that kind of profile and it is not the most promising set of comps, for instance, the aforementioned Mike Zunino has similar walk and strikeout numbers, Keston Hira, Jorge Alfaro, Michael Chavis, who the Red Sox just got rid of. So it is not an ideal set of comps. Maybe he just slugs so much that when he does connect, he'll hit 30 bombs, but I don't really see it. So I think he could lose his job like as soon as Cassis is ready. Yeah, mm-hmm. he is the first baseman of the future cast. That is not Bobby Dahlbeck. Although Bobby Dahlbeck sounds like the name of someone who should play in Boston. So it's there's a conflict. Oh, absolutely. There. Yeah. All right. Any other interesting storylines about the Red Sox? I guess there is Bogarts and whether he stays or goes. Other than that, anything? curious sort of related to that how the how the middle infield actually looks at the end of the year like do they continue this you know bogarts at short story at second sort of situation or are they going to end up switching story back to his natural position i mean like it's probably going to be fine but he is a better defensive shortstop than bogarts so i'm curious to see how that shakes out Mm -hmm. you know all right well i guess that takes us to the final team which as meg spoiled (laughs) quite a while ago. It's the Baltimore Orioles. We will probably not spend quite as much time on the Orioles as we have on the first four teams, but 
Anyone? Can you find an Orioles offseason move? Did one happen? <laughs> Did Guys, anyone I, get added to this team? I had a really hard time coming up with one. The only thing I could come up with was avoiding arbitration with Trey Mancini. That was cool. That's a nice story. <laughs> but I texted friend of the podcast and former baseball barbecue host, Jake Mintz, noted mm-hmm. Orioles fan. And I'm going to read verbatim what he said to me. He said, the best offseason move was, quote, moving the fence back. <laughs> oh yeah that was a very a very yep, jake response so mm-hmm. that's my best offseason move for the baltimore orioles yeah that's a good one uh... <laughs> i wrote yeah. not trading cedric mullins because that okay. was a rumor and i'm glad they kept him mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think that i mean they made a number of trades they did a number of trades where i think we all might take some issue but there are some guys on this roster who we maybe weren't sure would be so Maybe the lack of moves in some cases is uh is the winner here. I mean, yeah, didn't even trade John Means, who seemed like a more sensible trade candidate. Probably, I like John Means, but maybe makes more sense to deal him than Mullins. Let's say, but they held on to Means at least so far. So there's that. I guess our best offseason moves are moving the fence and not <laughs> trading some of the guys they didn't trade. <laughs> Get excited for Orioles baseball 2022. They haven't signed a single free agent to a multi-year contract under the new regime, and it's been there for a while. The yeah. last yep. the last free agent they signed to a multi-year contract, I believe, was Alex Cobb, who has now been with multiple <laughs> other teams since then. <laughs> it's not great. No. By the way, uh, Ben, did you see Alex's Alex Cobb's uh, quote about Otani the other no, day? What did he say? Apparently, this is according to, I think, yeah, this is according to Andrew baggerly he was talking to alex cobb who said he saw otani at driveline and he asked mm-hmm. do you think it's fair for otani to go to driveline and alex <laughs> cobb said quote no it's not he needs to not work out every offseason <laughs> so you know how good would otani be if he weren't allowed to touch a baseball or lift weights between october yeah. and march <laughs> probably still pretty good all right. Well, can we find a strength here? This is all relative. <laughs> strength relative to the rest of the roster. Anyone want to be brave here? If you squint, you can <laughs> see the shape of their potential future outfield for when they want to win more than 60 games. You know, mm-hmm. the Mullins was fantastic last year. I think Hayes' bat is real-ish. Real, probably. And... They'll probably call up Kyle Stowers after the All-Star break, and he could potentially be on a decent Orioles team. So I think that that is, I guess, the strength. But it is, as you said, relative to the rest of this very, very bad roster. Yeah. I mean, the farm system the farm is system the strength is the if strength. we want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It won't help. Well, maybe it'll help to some extent this season, but it's slim pickings here. So... I don't know. Weakness is just, I mean, throw a dart and you will hit one. But is there a particular weakness that stands out? (sighs) (laughs) The fact that this is not a major league baseball team. Yeah. This is not a a professional baseball team. This is really, this is really bad. This is a really, this is so bad. (laughs) 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 I, I mean, they don't have zero projected playoff odds like they might have in previous years, but. It's uh it's it's sure bad. Like this mm-hmm. is this is really rough stuff. This is just the roughest stuff there is. 
Yeah, they have seemingly done a decent job when it comes to like housing their minor leaguers. I, I yeah, saw a tweet good. the other day that they have, for instance, provided fully furnished apartments for players who have partners or, or wives or kids, which has been an issue for some organizations this season with the new housing policy. Yeah. So that's nice, I guess, and also pretty important because, uh, yeah, the minor leagues, <laughs> that's the strength here. And I don't know, I guess they have begun to make some more investments on the international market or more than zero which is an improvement so that's something i don't know i mean they do have like at least by our rankings they do have the top position player prospect in baseball and the top pitching prospect in baseball Mm -hmm. like that's exciting it is exciting like rutchman is a 70 future value prospect rodriguez is a 65 they i mean (laughs) boy that Rutschman injury sure ended up being convenient for them, didn't it? <laughs> the same yeah. thing happened to Vlad a couple years ago, yep. right? Yep. And so. even though I guess he's not starting the season with the major league team, he will be up at some point. And I mean, that's our, our most important rookie pick, I guess, right? And yes. maybe breakout pick too, if we want to just combine them, unless anyone has someone on the major league roster who you see as a potential breakout candidate. I do. Okay. Yes. Tyler Wells. <laughs> okay. All right. Make the case. Tyler Wells was a Rule 5 draft pick from the Twins before last year and actually was quite good. He threw 44 games out of the bullpen for Baltimore and had a 29% strikeout rate, 5% walk rate, and they're stretching him out this year. I think they're planning on using him in a sort of piggybacking starting role, and I'm interested in this for two reasons one because i could actually come up with a conceivable breakout pick who is not adley rutschman but number two because i think if you look at like the the shape that the astros tank and rebuild took a decade ago it wasn't really about the draft picks they got they got you know bregman from the draft but they also whiffed on a lot of top picks yeah but one of the advantages that such a long rebuilding period brought them was time to experiment and just see who would pop up out of nowhere someone like jose altuve who was not a touted prospect and scuffled a bit in his major league introduction and then turned into an mvp and maybe cedric mullins could occupy that role after struggling early in his career but then on the pitching side they had someone like dallas keichel or colin McHugh who came out of nowhere and then became important pitchers for that championship team maybe someone like tyler wells could fill that role for the orioles i'm actually like disappointed in a lot of respects with this orioles team first because it has taken so long by this point the astros were contending again but also because it feels like they haven't given young players enough of an opportunity to try and prove themselves like this so maybe wells will just be a a good 44 game pitcher and we won't really hear from him again but i do kind of believe in his stuff based on the results last year and i'm interested in seeing what happens if he moves to the rotation In the Fangraphs playoff odds projects the Orioles for 63 wins, which would be a huge leap forward for the Orioles, sad as that is. I mean, do you see this as the year when they not get good or anything, but just like get a little less depressing? I mean, other than 2020, when they played pretty decently in the shortened season, they have been, you know, high 40s, low 50s win totals for the past few years. So can they at least get out of that range? Can they get out of the 50s? (laughs) Is that too much to ask? Possibly. Yeah. It's possibly Uh too much to ask. I think a lot of it will depend on how long Rutschman is down and then what he looks like when he comes back because I don't know he's probably three wins on his own (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, so I think some of it's going to depend on that. And then, you know, they had all these guys who had good years out of nowhere. And so them sustaining is going to be helpful to answering that question. And then also when when did they start to get into the competent Astros part of their rebuilds, right? Because, you know, I agree. It's like there were the draft picks, but there were also other guys who were already in the system who they hit on and they made some free agent signings that were good. And we haven't seen that piece of this yet. Mm-hmm. So allegedly like 2023 was the year that they had pegged as when they were going to start being competitive, I guess that they're not going to win anything in 2023 that I I feel pretty confident saying that. Yeah. But a question that I'd like to pose for the group is, is that possible to like flip a switch that quickly? And if not, like, what do you think of in your heads when you think of turning a rebuild around? Because they've basically done nothing to improve the major league roster. Now, obviously, that will happen a lot quicker than, you know, signing guys and seeing if they pan out when it's just like rookies coming up and being amazing like Adley and Grayson Rodriguez. But how much how many seasons do you think it really takes to turn around a rebuild that is this bad? I mean (laughs) like on the one hand a lot because they need so much but they also have so little committed in payroll going into next year that I could see them if they strategically invest they won't I agree they're not going to win anything they probably don't even see the expanded playoff fields but like starting to move toward respectability they can probably do just by signing a couple of guys plus bringing up Rutschman, having Rodriguez on the roster, like they have, <laughs> they have twenty one million dollars of estimated luxury tax payroll next year. <laughs> That's it. So they have some room like, to spend. You're saying they have some room to spend. <laughs> yes. but who was signing there though? Is the like that's, that's well, part yeah, of my question par- too. That's it's part like of nobody, the problem. Yeah, right. Maybe, but I think that. If you want to make an argument for it, what you'd probably say is we're not getting the guys next year who are, you know, like the Carlos Correa level free agents. But if you bring in complementary pieces that move you from being a 50 win team to a 75 win team, maybe then as a free agent, if you're offered a big contract, you're like, well, I can be the difference maker that pushes this team into something resembling Mm -hmm. a competitive race in the East. You're Jason Wirth. Sure. <laughs> right. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Right? I mean, so, the Astros went from 51 wins to 70 wins to 86 wins in the playoffs. So right. it could only take a few years if they have that kind of core, which they could. So there's hope. That's what I meant about the timeline, too. Both the Astros and the Cubs, who engaged in their tanking projects simultaneously with Epstein and uh, Loonhow, they had both taken over and had three bad years, and then both teams made the playoffs in year four. This year, 2022, is year four for Mike Elias. And maybe like it's different because they had the pandemic season, but this is going to be four years in a row of some of the worst baseball we've ever seen, not to mention the last year before Elias took over when the Orioles lost 115 games. So they're already behind the previously laid out schedule. And to compare them with like Texas, I don't think Texas is going to contend this year. You talked in your iOS preview about how Texas probably isn't going to contend this year. But now when the prospects are ready in 2023, they already have a base of right. Seager and Simeon for them to join. So I also question, unless Baltimore is going to sign all of the best free agents on next year's class, who is going to 
be ready like to play with Rutschman and Rodriguez and D.L. Hall right. when they're all yeah. ready. I hear Michael Conforto needs somewhere to play, Zach. <laughs> Maybe he'll <laughs> sign in Baltimore. Yeah, I mean, if the Rangers can sign a few of the top free agents coming off the seasons that they've had, and if the Rockies can sign Chris Bryant, like, it can be done. You know, (laughs) you can convince a superstar to come pay for you. You just need to pay them. So I think that can happen. And if they do have Rodriguez and Rutschman and, of course, Mike Bauman, who we just haven't sung the praises of, but we're not here with Michael Bauman. Big Mike Bauman of the Orioles will be heading on to his first full season. We didn't pick him as most important rookie, right? We we should just give some shine to Big Mike Bauman. But there's enough young talent there that it could happen. It's just that in the short term, their quest for 60 wins is hamstrung by the strength of schedule. Just because of all of the other good teams in this division we've been talking about, they have a projected strength of schedule of 515. That's the collective winning percentage projected of their opponents this year. So that's not going to make it any easier for them to get out of the 50 win range. Maybe that's why they'll contend in 2023, because with the schedule change, they will only have to play <laughs> the other ALEs teams 14 times a piece instead of yeah. 18 or 19. That's a good point. One other thing I'm watching for the Orioles this year, specifically related to Rutschman, because he is obviously the most exciting part of the season whenever he debuts, is first of all, how his bat plays, because I think if there's any question about Rutschman's prospect ability, it is his bat. Like, uh, On the top 100 list from Fangraphs, it says that Adley makes a ton of contact, but not always on the sweet spot of the ball, leading to what we anticipate will be all fields doubles spray rather than elite home run totals. So I'm curious to see how his power plays specifically against major league pitching. And then also, I hesitate to say this, and I'm glad I've saved this for the end of the podcast, but I want to enjoy Rutschman's framing while we have it, because I'm not sure how long that's going to last until the ABS overlords Mm -hmm. take it from us and we can no longer enjoy Rutschman who for everything I've read and seen is just an impeccable framer and I wonder what that'll do to his value that's obviously something you discussed around the prospect package a couple months ago Meg Mm -hmm. but I I just want Rutschman in the majors for as long as we can have him until the system comes in and takes his framing ability from us Mm mm-hmm All right. Well, thanks to both of you for helping us preview baseball's strongest division, probably, even though probably fans of teams in other divisions are sick of the AL East by now. You can find Zach writing regularly at The Ringer and not just about baseball, sometimes about basketball, too. He's also on Twitter at Zach Cram. That's Zach with an H, not with a K. And Bobby, you can still hear producing many Ringer podcasts, including The Big Picture and R2C2. He is on Tipping Pitches, which he co-hosts as well. And he is on Twitter at BWAGS. That is B-W-A-G-S. S at the end, as opposed to Bobby Wagner, the Los Angeles Ram, who is at the Wags with a Z at the end. I'm sure they never get confused, and Bobby never gets tweets intended for the Los Angeles Ram. No one has ever told me that it's their kid's lifelong dream for Bobby Wagner to come play for the Philadelphia Eagles, and they're very upset that he went to play for the Los Angeles Rams. That's never happened, Ben. I've never experienced that. The question is if Meg tweeted angrily at you when you left the Seahawks. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I wish Bobby the best, but I'd like for my privacy to be respected at this time. 
And at the Ringer this week, even though we will not be doing Ringer MLB shows this season, we'll have some preview content up this week. You can find all of us uh, making our predictions and picks, which I do under duress as always. And (laughs) we'll also have a group post about the 25 best players under 25. You can look for those on Wednesday. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. All right, that will do it for today, except for a few updates and postscripts here. First, the Rays made a trade after we recorded. They dealt Austin Meadows, the outfielder, to the Tigers for infielder Isaac Paredes and a competitive balance round pick. I don't think we mentioned Meadows on the episode, but the presence of Paredes probably affects some prospects we talked about. Another young, promising infielder for the Rays hasn't really hit yet in the majors, but good contact rates, good walk rates. So probably a short-term hit for Tampa Bay's offense. And it sounds as if the Rays' top position player prospect, Josh Lowe, will be called up to replace Meadows. So that's yet another exciting prospect who will seemingly be on opening day rosters. And I believe that is indeed Lowe, not Lau. Also, meant to mention in our intro a little bit of news that Justin Upton was released by the Angels, which was somewhat surprising to some people because he was off to a hot start offensively in spring training. However, he has not hit in the regular season for a few years, and he has defensive limitations, and he is blocked at DH by Shohei Otani. The Angels are hoping that Brandon Marsh and Joe Adele will give them good defense and maybe more offense in the outfield as well. And so there was just not really a place or a path to regular playing time for Justin Upton, who will probably catch on for some other team potentially making the major league minimum and may make them happier than he could have made the Angels. But it is striking, I suppose, just how much money the Angels have eaten over the past several years, what with Josh Hamilton and Albert Pujols and Justin Upton. But all three of those guys have had high highs. Upton has had a fine career. It is probably not over, but it is over with the Angels. Tough timing, though. He was hitting 333, 474, 933 with a few dingers in spring training. That's a 1407 OPS in seven games. If he hit like that all year, he'd be worth much more than the $28 million he's in line to make this season. But he hasn't been an above-average big league hitter since 2018. And he hasn't been durable and he's defensively limited as well. Which doesn't mean that he couldn't catch on as a platoon DH somewhere, let's say. Speaking of platooning and handedness, we discussed on our previous episode what the term should be for players who bat right-handed and throw left-handed. Of course, players who bat right-handed and throw left-handed, the Ricky Hendersons of the world, there are very few of them, are known as wrong-way guys. But the reverse, batting lefty, throwing righty, is more common and more advantageous. There's no real name for those players other than just left-right guys. We discussed maybe something like semi-dextrous, semi-ambidextrous could work. Listener Myth suggested Balrogs for bat lefty, throw righty. We also got suggestions of split hitter from listener Alex. And from listener Steven, goofy bat or goofy arm, like the boarding term for wrong-footedness, goofy foot. But as listener and Patreon supporter Stephen M. reminded us, there is a term for this technically. And I was aware of this, but I blanked on it. These players have been dubbed sinister right-handers. Sinister, of course, comes from the Latin word that means on the left side. So a sinister right-hander bats left but throws righty. And Stephen linked us to a study that I think I'd seen before, but it's a few years old. And it's about the idea that, as the headline says, sinister right-handedness provides Canadian-born major league players with an offensive advantage. And the study backs up this idea. 
This is because of the hockey connection. So the abstract says, since the inception of MLB, the relative proportion of Canadian-born sinister right-handers is at least two times greater than players from other regions. Although being Canadian-born does not provide a direct offensive advantage, rather, results showed evidence of a significant indirect effect in that being Canadian-born increases the odds of being a sinister right-hander and in turn leads to greater performance across each offensive performance statistic. Collectively, findings provide further support for the hockey influence on batting hypothesis and suggest this effect extends to offensive performance. So some of the most famous Canadian players, Joey Votto, Larry Walker, they were sinister right-handers and are sinister right-handers, and it's because you learn to shoot lefties. It's because in hockey you learn to shoot one way, and if you play hockey before baseball, then maybe you just port that over to your baseball swing. So I will link to that, but in the meantime, I suppose we can go with sinister right-handers as the preferred term. I was also reminded that in our discussion of what it would take for a reliever to win the Cy Young Award or an MVP award, we neglected to bring up the example of Zach Britton, who made a run at it in 2016. We talked about Fernando Rodney in 2012, but Britain was a more recent example. In 2016, he led the AL in saves with 47. He had a .54 ERA in 67 innings, and even that, that was good for fourth in Cy Young voting and 11th in MVP voting. So he was on the board, but even that historic season, you know, maybe if you combined that kind of ERA with a record-breaking save season, which would be tough with saves distributed the way they are today. But as Zach, one of our guests today, reminded me, I actually wrote an article for The Ringer back then about Britain's not just Cy Young candidacy, but even MVP candidacy. Not that I necessarily supported voting for him, but I was saying you could make a case based on championship win probability added, a stat that he lapped the rest of the league in. So I will link to that to refresh anyone else's memory. And one last email from Patreon supporter Brian Riley. This is a great one. He says, I was listening to episode 1831, and Ben's question about the recent Billions episode got me thinking. This was the strange Otani reference in Billions. And Brian says, I wonder if you or Meg has ever heard of Marvel Comics No Prize. And in fact, I have. Brian continues, it started as a sort of offhand response Stan Lee would write to readers who noticed errors in the comics. Congrats, you win No Prize but then evolved into an award that readers would receive for writing a letter to point out errors, but then proposing clever explanations for said error. Marvel even went as far as sending out empty envelopes printed with congratulations, you've won no prize on them to readers whose letters to the editor were printed. A textbook example of a winning no prize would be something like a reader noticing that the artist drawing an issue of Fantastic Four accidentally gave Mr. Fantastic three hands and only one foot in a scene where he's falling from a building. If the reader pointed this out, then suggested that Mr. Fantastic was trying to catch himself from falling, and given the nature of his superpower had reshaped his foot into a hand to try and catch himself, he'd be in line for the award. Your conversations about billions kind of did the same thing, and you've had conversations like this in the past, but why not make it official? Since this conversation reminded me about the Marvel equivalent, I was thinking it might be time to institute the Effectively Wild Show Prize. Listeners and hosts who come up with the best in-world explanations for these flubs get the illustrious honor of receiving the completely made-up, totally immaterial show prize, named after everyone's favorite, Ben's favorite player. This is an excellent suggestion. I love it. And if anyone wants to win a show prize by writing in to justify that Otani reference in Billions, please feel free. Oh, and I lied. Last thing. Listener Michael also responded to our discussion in that episode about displaying innings pitch totals and the fact that we see, say, 0.1 stand in for a third of an inning and 0.2 for two-thirds of an inning rather than 0.3 or 0.7. Michael says, seems like a nice alternative to fractional innings pitch would just be to report outs pitched. So three and two-thirds innings pitch becomes 11 outs or whatever. 
Analyzers in need of innings pitch can divide by three with no loss of precision. Integers. I like that. It would require an adjustment. We're used to seeing things in innings, but that would be an elegant solution, I think. So you can keep your comments and suggestions and feedback coming via email to me and Meg at podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Speaking of which, you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, get themselves access to some perks and help us stay ad free. Sarah. Jonathan Johnson, Ken, 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 MCS, and Maxwell Elkus. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to an exclusive Effectively Wild Discord group, monthly bonus pods with me and Meg, and more. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. And we will be back with our final Division Preview podcast next time. It will be NL East. Talk to you soon. Just feel safe.